started it's Memorial Day. So glory to God. So what does the scripture say? Greater love has no one than to lay down their life for another. Right. Yeah. Um so obviously we know the 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 greatest act of laying down your life for another was God Himself coming and laying down uh his life for us, him shedding his own blood to redeem us from death. But in light of uh Today being Memorial Day in the United States, we also remember all the people that died fighting to preserve, right, the the lives of, of people in the earth, right? And we also remember that it's all about God. That these broken systems, if I'm not mistaken. This was originally Armistice Day on World War One, which was the war, the war to end all wars. So it's about God and his goodness, not about these systems and what they tell us. Yeah. Right. Um, the, yeah, the, the, the systems are obviously built upon a, a corruptible life. They're brought forth in corruption. And even in spite of all of that, it's not a rejoicing of, of war or a rejoicing of one group of people over another group of people yeah. in that we know that there's no Jew or Gentile. But it is an acknowledging that people have died for the sake of other people. And it's just an acknowledging of what that means. And um, really, it's also an acknowledging of the families yes. that lost loved ones at the hands of that system. And lost loved ones at the hands of the the fighting and warring in the earth, right? And the grief that they feel over it. It's like a like a tipping of your hat to them. And it's just kind of acknowledging, like God acknowledged with us, right? He came down and put his hand on us and looked us in the face and said, I know. Right. Me too. Yeah. And on Memorial Day, that's what it's like. It's like we're looking in the face of all the family members and we're just putting our hands out and touching them to say, We know. Right. We know what it feels like. We know the hurt that you feel. Right. We know what it's like to lose a loved one. And for me, that's what Memorial Day is really about. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you're, they say you're remembering these people. These people aren't here. Right. So they don't really care if you're remembering them. I promise. Right? They, they don't. Right. They're not up in heaven or wherever they're at thinking how happy they are that we're remembering them. So, yes, we're remembering what has happened in order for us to be able to meet like this. But for me, it's more of an honoring of the families and what they go through. Yeah. And I think it's something that's lost in our society, which makes sense because if we're not constantly reminded of something, we become forgetful. They call it forgetful hearers. What that means is, is you've forgotten to keep hearing, right? <laughs> right? right. You've forgotten to sit at the feet of Jesus and continue to hear what he said. Well, I think um, in our society, we've forgotten everything that's gone into being able to live like we live here, right? Becky and I were just talking, and there's lots of people. We could talk about my dad. We could talk about anybody. But in light of me having been gone for three or so weeks, we were talking about Jay and Cindy and how she was pregnant and giving birth to twins, and Jay wasn't even there. It's in the Middle East. He, he wasn't even there. You see, and people just gloss over that like, who cares? Yeah. Right? But like Cindy comes in wearing red, white, and blue. 
right? My dad is wearing the veteran hat. The reason why they're doing that is lost on the most current generation of human beings, right? Because they never experienced something like that, right? Where you're just gone and Cindy's left being pregnant and giving birth to twins without her husband there. Oh, by the way, no FaceTime, no cell phones, all by mail (laughs) or by Mars radio, which is like, you know, you contact someone who's a ham radio operator <laughs> and you talk through the ham radio operator who connects it to the telephone, who connects it to your spouse. And you say, I love you. Over. over. <laughs> it's just, you had to use radio, you had to use radio protocol. It. Right. And you were talking on it because yeah. you were talking on a radio. Yeah. And so just the, yeah. the, the sacrifices that, that people yeah. have lived through, right. I think is lost because we, we don't remember and we just forget. We just, we, it's not that we're, when we say take it for granted, it's not that we're bad people and we're unthankful people. It's that thankfulness is the fruit of continuously being reminded of something. Right. There's something that produces thankfulness in you. You're not the source of thankfulness. And if you're not confronted with that which produces thankfulness, you'll, you'll end up being an ingrate. <laughs> right? Not because you're a bad person. Not because you calculated on the board to be an ingrate. It's because your mind wasn't being filled or confronted with that which produces thanksgiving. Right? We come into the gates with thanksgiving. The way we get into the gate isn't by thanksgiving. It's that we see that Jesus opened the door and no man closes it. And no man can shut the door that he's opened. And so we come running into the gate filled with thanksgiving on account of us seeing what he's done to make a way for us to partake with him in his eternal life. And so you skip into the room, right? But the gate is open. That's why you're skipping into the room. You see the gate open and that father's thanksgiving in you. And so you're coming into the presence of the Lord full of thanksgiving. It's not your thanksgiving that brought you into the presence of the Lord. Your thanksgiving is not God. It's God who brought you into his own presence by his own doing and his own will. And when you see that, it will cause you to skip to your loo. Right? Right. Like loo, loo, skip to my loo, loo, skip to my loo. Right? And you'll skip right into the presence of the Lord, filled with thanksgiving. Right? Right. Somebody said earlier, I thought it's it's almost poetic. that whatever suffering or loss, family members, fear, whatever, uh, the living Christ in everything. Yeah, me too. Yeah, I know your suffering. Yeah, I feel you. That's right. And we're never alone in our suffering. We can be foolish, like I can be sometimes, and think I'm alone in my suffering. But yeah. no, yeah, me too. Yeah, because suffering tries to accuse God. We don't realize that. I mean, I've been talking about this a lot, but death carries with it an accusation. In yes. fact, the only way that an accusation could be present is in the presence of suffering or death or calamity or lack or tribulation. That's why you hear that voice in the presence. And that's why you don't hear that voice when things are going peachy keen. Because death accuses, lack accuses, tribulation accuses. And do you know what it says to you? God isn't as he ought to be. God isn't there. You're all alone. Right, I can, so, I can see a situation where things are seemingly going your way, and you have accusations. Someone says, "Oh, well, I got this business deal because I tithed." That's an accusation that God gave you something because you tithed. I'm talking about the accusation against God's person. That is an accusation against God's person that He's a conditional giver. Mm-hmm. 
I've had most of my temptations when things have gone well. I'm just saying. I don't think that's personally. I wouldn't call that an accusation. Well, is does God bless something because they tithe? No. Well, that's a false accusation now. You're attributing to God a character trait that's not true. Well, I think that's just a lie. Okay. Anyway, I was just observing that the convert, that, the, that God can also be falsely represented in circumstances that you are pleased with. That that voice is ever present to accuse God, not one just when you're hurting. Where it's ever you, present. Where do you see that in Jesus? Uh, okay, that's your litmus test, and I agree with the litmus test, so I'll have to think about that one. <laughs> I don't disagree with what you're saying. I agree that's the proper analysis, but I'd have to think about it. Just for the sake of the conversation, I agree with what you're saying. Your reasoning from the perspective, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, your reasoning from just life experience, I'm reasoning from the words that are used in the scriptures and how they're used in the scripture. Yeah. So both statements could be yeah. true. But I'll think about that simultaneously. And, and I do like that litmus test because that's how you can cut through a lot of... Well, no, it's the litmus test for everything. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree. It's how you can cut through... Like uh, the, the whole conversation about... What's the terminology you used? Uh, nobody's entitled to their own opinion about the truth or something like that. Yeah, we don't get to have our own opinion. <laughs> yes. We don't and we get into trouble when we want to have our own opinion. So I agree with the, I agree with the, uh, the analysis. It's like the situation with the glass being darkly lit, yeah. right? So was the glass darkly lit for Jesus? No. Okay. Then that answers the question of whether or not the, we're condemned to the glass being darkly lit for us. Right. right. And that's how you get into not establishing doctrines outside of the word that was made flesh in Jesus. That litmus test is what I believe what Jesus was talking about when he said, for judgment am I coming to the world that those who see might be made blind and those who are blind might see. Yeah. It's also the same thing that's being talked about when he says God dealt to every man the measure of faith because we have the life of Jesus to measure everything against. And for so long in word of faith, you know, everybody's been dealt the measure of faith. So it's up to you to increase that measure because he gave you a little bit, you know, but that's not what he's saying at all. <laughs> I think the, the, the contrary side of that is that would result in in me being tempted to think that my works have done something, right? That, that that's how. Yeah, that's exactly what the temptation is. And that's, that's why it's based on a false representation. That if you do this, God will bless you because you did that, God has yeah. cursed you. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's what we thought when we, uh, we tied regularly and when our girls, all three got, college scholarships and we didn't have any money saved for their college we believed that god blessed us because we had been faithful tithers <laughs> i understand what you're saying and see that now that we keep talking about it this is the the distinction that in itself isn't an accusation but that belief would have to be born from an accusation to begin with mm -hmm. against God's character. Mm -hmm. Yes. So if, if you're tithing 
and you think that and things are going good for you and you think it's because you're tithing, you're not going to hear an accusation in the presence of that. But your belief that it's because of your tithing would have originated from an accusation against God's character mm -hmm. to begin with. Right. So Thomas is correct. The only reason you would believe that is if God's character had been accused somewhere along the line to begin with. But that's not to say you would be hearing an accusation in that moment, which is what I was saying. Right. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. Yes. All right. I knew we were going to get it because I knew I agreed with the, the premise of what he was saying. And I knew I also knew what I was saying was true. And, and I want to publicly thank you for not getting mad at me. <laughs> He's testing me. Testing me. Attention was present. Be, I for everyone else. I mean, what does the proverb say? A wise, it's a wise man that loves to be corrected. I've already been chastised about that whole dynamic. It's not going to, uh, it won't happen like that again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, glory to God. But does every, everybody understand all what we were saying? What we're saying? Does everybody understand the distinction that was being made? Mm -hmm. Right? And how both of those things were true? Right? Mm -hmm. When you learn to understand where the voice of accusation comes from, you like have ears to hear it clearly. Yeah. You begin to discern clearly. It's almost like a person comes with a paintbrush and fills out the image of the accuser right there in your presence, and you realize that that voice comes from the father of lies, yes. right? And you immediately start thinking of the good shepherd, right? And you know the voice of the good shepherd, right? You start seeing God is the good shepherd and your heart begins connecting with that, which is what happened with Jesus on the cross, right? He understood where the accusation came from. He wasn't like, oh my gosh, why am I hearing this voice? He understood that death accuses God. Well, he, he also said, I know what's in man. And he said that, um, and I'm going to paraphrase, that Satan had nothing in him. Yeah. So he had the Holy Spirit, as we do, uh, to discern that voice. Uh, I guess the difference being that Jesus never fell for the lie. And why didn't he fall for the lie? Because he had the voice of the Father in him constantly. Right. right. He knew that the Father... And that's why, if, we're not, if we keep hearing, hearing, hearing... We will keep hearing the Father's voice and more easily discern the, the, the lie. Yeah. Satan had nothing in Jesus because Satan couldn't convince Jesus that the Father wasn't shepherding his life. Right. Mm -hmm. He couldn't convince Jesus that he wasn't hedged about with the Father. Right. He couldn't convince Jesus that the Father, the life that the Father, that he shared with the Father from the beginning was the door that had him kept in the sheepfold and protected from the wolves and the, the thieves and the robbers. He couldn't convince Jesus that he could steal from him, right? So he could never tear down the image of the Father in the heart of Jesus. And that's why he had nothing in him. And the way Satan would have something in people is the ability to tear down the image of the Father in their presence, mm -hmm. right? And the, the tools that he would use is the things in the earth, the things you can experience in the earth, the things you can encounter in the earth, right? But if you... If your heart becomes established in what God, what Jesus revealed about the Father, then Satan will also not have anything in you. And this isn't about, don't try to connect this to now, this is the power to we're going to try to live perfectly. That's not what I'm talking about. 
we're not trying to live perfectly, but I am telling you that you can walk in the good work of God to the degree that you're persuaded God's always there and God's always with you. And Satan can never come and try and convince you that you're left alone to try to father your own life because you'll always see God there with you to father your life. And you'll connect with him in that place every time. You might be a puddle of sobbing. You might be a puddle of tears. You might feel so much weakness over what you've encountered that you don't even think you can pick yourself up off the ground. But you know what will come out of you, daddy? And you'll begin just pouring it out with him. You'll begin sobbing with him, crying with him, talking with him about everything that you're going through, right? And you'll end up finding yourself strengthened and sustained, finding yourself filled with peace and love and joy out of that connecting with him, right? That's the casting of the care, right? You're, you become aware that he cares for you, that he has taken thought to care for your life. And so when you're filled with worries about your life or your situation, you find yourself connecting with the one who has cared for you right? That's the casting of your care. It's not a principle that you're working. Right. You really, you could describe it as Abba into your hands, I commit my life, right? It's this dynamic that happens when your heart looks to God, when you find yourself in the middle of duress, and that will lift the cares off of you automatically, right? The cares being lifted off of you isn't a principle you work where you try and tell him to carry your cares. It's something that organically happens as you just connect with him about the things that are bothering your heart, right? As you're just connecting with him about what you feel, what's going on, what you don't like, what you want to see, as you're just connecting with him about your confusion, about your doubt, but whatever it is, as you're connecting with him about that, off of you is coming the cares, Off of you is coming the worries. Your life is being kept from the stress and the anxiety in that place, in that moment, right? Does that make sense? On another note, it's also uh, Pentecost Sunday. Oh, is it? Which piggybacks right on the back of what we're talking about, about the Father as our shepherd. And so for those of you who know, Pentecost is the day that the Holy Spirit was poured out on all flesh. Mm And there's a lot of things you can describe about that. I think most recently, my favorite way of describing it is how Maurice described it. The The promise of the Spirit was the Father promising us himself. Right. Do you remember when you said that, Maurice? Not exactly. <laughs> I do. Do you want to say something about that? No, not really. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> You, you were talking about how it's the promise of the Father. Yeah. Where for so many years I would read that verse as the promise from the Father. That the Father promised us something. Yeah. Right? And then just seeing that, well, more accurately, the Father promised us himself. Yeah. Right? And the Father promised that he would hedge our life about in himself. Right? He promised to shepherd our lives. He told us we weren't lambs being led away to the slaughter. That he would hedge us about in himself and that his life would be the door that would keep our lives. And then the Holy Spirit being poured out on all flesh is the promise of the Father. And what does the Holy Spirit do? What is the ministry of the Holy Spirit? It's not to convict us of our sins. Comfort. Not in the way that we describe we it. Comfort. Yes. And how does he comfort? Lead us into all truth. Leads us into all truth. The all truth about what? That two plus two equals four? No, no. He brings back to your remembrance all things whatsoever I have said. And what did he say? 
as he is, so are we in this world. That's part of it, but primarily, whatsoever things that Jesus say, we're in the Gospel of John. He is the light of the world. And what does the light of the world do? Lights up man. With what? Love. No, yes, that's the fruit, but what does he light them up with? His life. His life. His life, yes. The light of the revelation of himself in you, your your understanding that he is he came to be one with you and to walk with you, be Emmanuel, God with us. He yeah. came to reveal the Father. Right. Yeah. That's the light of the world. Yes. He brings the Father out of the darkness of the carnal mind, mm -hmm. the shadow of death, and puts them clearly on display in our midst. Mm -hmm. That's how the Gospel of John begins. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God, right? Mm -hmm. and, and then it goes on to say, and the Word was made flesh, and we beheld Him as the only begotten of the Father. So He revealed the glory of the Father. Jesus said He didn't come to speak of Himself. He came to speak of the Father. He said, the Father has given me commandment. And what was that commandment? To reveal him. What does Jesus pray in John 17? Right after he talks about another will come in my likeness. And he will guide you into whatsoever things I've revealed to you. He prays to the Father. Father, glorify me that it might reveal you in the midst of all these people. I'm going to take these people's sin and death upon myself in that place. I'm going to see your faithfulness towards my life. I'm going to commit my desire for life into your hands. You're going to show up. You're going to manifest the fullness of who and what you are inside of my physical body. And the fullness of your life is going to shine out of my physical body. And it's going to reveal to all the people who are dead in sin what and who you are and that you're the father of their life and that you're with them to pick them up out of the miry clay, that you're faithful towards them. That will reveal you to them. So Jesus didn't come to speak about himself. He came to reveal the Father, right? He also said that the Holy Spirit will not come to speak about themselves. But he'll, he'll, he'll come in the same likeness that I've come, he said. I'll send one like unto you that's in my likeness. Meaning, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Right? So the Holy Spirit also come to show us the Father and guide us to the place where we see the Father with us shepherding our lives, which is what Jesus walked around in this earth knowing by the power of the Holy Spirit, was that the Father was with him shepherding his life even as he walked in this earth. Right, And that ties into what Callie said. That's why the Holy Spirit's called the Comforter. Right, Because if you actually see God there with you, you will feel comforted. You will. You will feel comforted when you see the God that can even make dead bones live. When you see the God that can even form flesh around bones that had no flesh, no more particles anymore. When you see the God that created everything out of nothing, that can even bring forth order out of the midst of chaos, that can overcome death in the flesh. When you see that God standing there with you, you will feel comforted. Just like a baby will feel comforted. A baby could be in the, the cradle crying and yelling, and screaming, right? And then the parent comes in there and picks up the baby and holds the baby and pats the baby, and the baby starts to feel comforted, and the baby can be made to calm down, right? That's how it is with God. That's why the Holy Spirit's called the Comforter, 
He comforts you by revealing to you God is with you to be the father of your life, right? He's with you shepherding your life, and that comforts you, right? He has hedged you about, right, in his life. He has done something to keep the wolves from being able to devour you. He's done something to keep the thieves and the robbers from coming against you. That's the Holy Spirit. Does anybody want to add on to that? I will. I don't know about y'all, but uh, that discussion we had at Table Talk last week, that did something to me. When we talked about the ascension, you know, <clears throat> Paul talked about he doesn't want to know anything except Christ and him crucified, and he concentrated on the death, resurrection, and ascension of, of Jesus. I had never thought about the ascension in the way we talked about last week and how it had the effect of not only, one of its effects was that not only did it cast out the accusation, but the accuser himself from heaven where we will be in the presence of God as indicated by the fact that Jesus ascended and is seated there at the right hand of the Father. And it's almost like uh, like if you had a, or, or let's say you had a, an ailment and someone gave you an antibiotic you don't know how the antibiotic works, but you took it and you feel different. That's how it was after last week. It was like, man, the ascension is important to me in a way that it wasn't important before. It's like that did something for me. It's like I did. I don't even understand it intellectually. I just heard it, and I feel differently. It's good stuff. Hallelujah. Grow with the humility, not how. And someone say, well, how do you feel differently? Okay, well, something that I was looking to for life no longer has its allure. <laughs> something in the world. Yeah. Yeah. It just instantly like, why would I want that? That's not going to do anything for me. Just, I didn't deduce it. I didn't analyze it. I didn't figure it out. It was just like I heard about the ascension. It cast out the accuser. The evidence of Jesus sitting. You know, it's almost like uh, if you go to heaven and say, hey, Jesus, you're sitting in my seat. <laughs> <laughs> like you came in here, you always sit in the same place. You yeah. come in and say, Jesus, you're sitting in my seat. Right, He'd yeah. probably laugh at that and of smile. He would. He, would say, he would say, you got that right. <laughs> he would say, flesh and, bone has, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, think about it. Just think about telling the son of God, hey, you're sitting in my seat. <laughs> Yeah, but he's your best friend, so it's okay. No, not only that, he'd say, yeah, I've been holding it for you. Yeah. That's right. I came to prepare a place for yeah. you. Yeah. We're seated together yeah. with him. He said, I'm glad, yeah, I'm glad that you know that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's, that's the, I'm kind of articulating it as I'm speaking out loud. That's, that's the effect it had. His ascension is our ascension. You know, we, we like you said, we seated with him in heavenly places. And, and to know that is just an awesome idea. And, re, and, and when you think it's not just an idea, but it's a reality, it, it's, uh, it's mind-blowing. You ever go to a convention, a seminar, a wedding, they got name tags in the seats. Well, I'm going to sit on this one. You're looking, looking, yeah. oh, way up there. Oh, right next to him. My name's right there. <laughs> That's right. 
and it dis- it discerns the heart. People don't realize this, but so much of what we do isn't actually born from desire. Because desire is free from, I need something to have life. Yeah. Desire is born from, I already have everything that pertains to life. Now, what do I want to do in the place that I can neither gain or lose anything? That's the only foundation from where desire is born. And people don't realize how much of what they do is born from an accusation that they don't have something they need for life. And then that accusation begins fathering in them what they're doing or not doing, right? So not that Thomas needed to be cracked open, but for the sake of this conversation, that's one of the things the ascension would do. It would remove the, the lust that's in people. And lust would just be you trying to gather life to yourself, right? And you don't really want to do what you're doing. It's not even like you desire that, but you've been convinced that life is found in that or your life is hid in this and that's why you're after it or that's why you're doing something, right? Well, the moment you can behold your life in the resurrected Jesus seated at the right hand of God, that will start to tell you that you have all things in him, right? That everything you need for life and godliness is wrapped up in him. And even if you don't understand how that's true, if you just agree that it's true, you'll find yourself inquiring of him every time you need something. Well, what that'll do is it will remove everything you decided you wanted to do in order to gain life. And then that stuff will be sent away from you, right? And all of a sudden, you'll no longer find that you want to do that because you'll what you thought you could get from doing that, you've been convinced you have here, right? So now that falls by the wayside and you're just here, right? And that keeps you from, that'll keep you from a lot of pain and suffering. I think that's when you enter into the uh, the let us experience. Yeah. Where it doesn't mean that uh, you, you find yourself complete and whole, um, lacking nothing, and then you do nothing. It's, hey, what do you want to do now? Yeah. Okay, let us do that. Right. Yeah. And you, what you do is born from abundance. Right. It's born from strength. It's actually born from the strength that's in God's life. Yes. Right? right, that becomes the power behind what you're doing instead of the weakness of flesh trying to gain life or strength. Mm-hmm. Because so much of what we do is from the perspective of weakness, thinking that if we can do or gain, then we'll be strong. Right? Well, the foundation behind that—that's that's poverty, right? And that's that's just weakness. It's inability. It's—I I mean, there's so many words. You, it's fatigue. It's—I mean, there's no strength behind that kind of a thing. It's willpower. Right. But when you when what you're doing is born from the life of God, it's like Paul. Right. Where he said, I labored more abundantly than them all. Yet not I, but the grace of God in me. That's an interesting statement Paul makes, because you want to remember Saul, who was also a pretty significant proselytizer. But from a completely different foundation and from a completely corrupt perspective, he was a proselytizer right? And then now all his laboring, he comes and says, the grace of God is what was laboring in me. And God's grace is born from his life. The strength God has in himself emanates from his incorruptible life. And so Paul was busy functioning from lack, functioning from, I don't have, but I can gain, right? I'm not justified, but I can be justified. And that was the power behind everything he was doing before. And now what comes is this grace, this strength that comes from abundance. Yeah. 
I have everything already, right? God is with me. He's the father of my life. The life I have in this mortal body has come from above, right? And now you're fellowshipping with that life. And that life is the nutrient behind what you're doing, right? The difference between Paul doing what he's doing from lust and Paul doing what he was doing from abundance, right? Completely different things. And I think you could find that distinction in most ministry in the world today. I think you have most ministry conducted in the world today from the foundation of lust and not from the foundation of abundance, the foundation of lack and not the foundation from I have all things, right? It's, 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 it's a completely backwards way of ministry, right? It's not the declaration. It doesn't say that a great light can shine in the midst of these people, right? If they'll repent from their sin. But that's how we say it. Instead of declaring what the great light that shined is, right? Instead of declaring to people. You know what people want? They want their life to be cared for. And you know what they want? They want an incorruptible life. They want their life to be perfected from sin, death, corruption. They want peace and love and joy. They want to be nurtured. They want to feel comforted. They want to feel pampered. Those are the things they want. Everybody already wants that. You don't have to come and convince them that they're a worm or they're an evil person to now try to preach the gospel to them because they're already longing for life. Everyone's longing for life. Now you show up and you declare the great light that shined in the midst of everyone, which is that there's good news for you. You're not an orphan left in the earth to try to get those things for yourself. You have a father in heaven whose good pleasure is to serve these things to you. And we have a sign that proves we have a father in heaven whose good pleasure is to pick us up out of the miry clay. There's a sign that we have that shows us that this God is so faithful towards us that while we were yet unfaithful towards him, he entered into the earth and shed his own blood to redeem us from death, right? And you come unveiling the Father in their presence so that they could see they're not an orphan. You don't come and tell them, well, it's possible for you not to be an orphan if you'll repent. No, you come and declare they're not an orphan so that they will find something in their heart where they call upon the name of the Lord, right? And then you present them with the Father. And now they're left with either I'm going to call upon the name of the Father or I'm going to harden my heart to the Father. But you don't come and tell them that the Father is a possibility. The Father is the Father. Right. It's not that the Father can become the Father. It's that He is the Father. <laughs> right? And now we come and declare Him to everyone. Right. right? And then people will either call upon His name or they'll harden their heart to Him. We haven't really done that in the body of Christ because we function from lack. Right. right? I was also thinking about the difference between the resurrection of Lazarus and the resurrection of Jesus. Well, Lazarus didn't ascend. You know, hey, it was a miracle. Oh, this guy must be from God. Okay. But then he died. Yeah. <laughs> Completely different with Jesus. He didn't ascend. Yeah. Imagine the gospel we preach, and that's powerful. Imagine the gospel we, we, we preach in the midst of Jesus on the cross. You think you got to come and convince him he's a worm? You think you got to come and convince him to repent from sin? You think he don't already know that he needs life? Yes, absolutely. You think he's not already wanting peace and love and joy? You think he's not already seen his nakedness? Right? So how would you preach the gospel to Jesus on the cross? Yeah, he needs comfort and healing. Yeah. Right? What would you say to that guy? The Father is here to give you life. Right. What did the Spirit say to Jesus? The Father is here. 
Right. What would the Spirit say to us? That's the gospel we should preach. And it can give you a great indication of, well, what would I say to Jesus if I use Jesus as the picture of a person who needs to be saved? Because it says that he looked to the one who could save him. So Jesus laid down his divinity to put on perishable flesh, right? He laid down the glory he had with the Father from the beginning to put on the likeness of sinful flesh, right? So there he is as the Son of Man. Sin and death is in him, just like sin and death was in all of us. He needs to be saved from death too. Well, what would the gospel sound like that you preach to that guy? And that's how we should determine the gospel that we preach to everyone, Sure. right? And it goes back to, it's not an intellectual thing, although it can sound like it, but through various moments, we put out on display what it looks like to live by the word made flesh. Do you see how we just define the gospel by using the word? There's a word being made flesh in Jesus, and that told us what the gospel should sound like. That's how. That's one of the things, living by the word made flesh. Jesus is the word made flesh. You see how we weighed that with Jesus? Thomas and I, when we're both talking about accusation from two different perspectives, we didn't default to our own intellect. I didn't try to argue with Thomas about how what he was saying was wrong intellectually, but we both, well, do we see that in Jesus? And see, now both of us could say, you know what? Jesus is rabbi. And I'm expounding on this more. Both of us could acknowledge, well, Jesus is rabbi. And what we know is he's the only metric. So either he'll show me that I'm missing part of what he's saying, or he'll show Thomas that he's missing part of what I'm saying. And through the course of that conversation happening, I even felt the Holy Spirit categorize the thing right there in my midst. No, Thomas is right. This is what he's pointing to. And you're also right, because this is what you're pointing to. And both of them were revealed in Jesus, right? Is Revelation uh, subtitled the Revelation of Jesus? The Revelation is Jesus. Right. And I was just thinking. It's what was revealed in Jesus Christ. Right. And I'm just thinking all through the scriptures, it, you know, well, from the New Testament on when Jesus appears, he is revealing the Father. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Jesus Christ is Alpha and Omega. He is the heart of the Father. He is the Father. He's the life of the Father. He's the manifestation of the Father's eternal purpose. He's the manifestation of the Father's original intent. He's the manifestation of the dream the Father had for his own life. He is the unveiling of what God was always after to do, right? And so Revelation comes to unveil what God was always after when he released Christ Jesus into the earth, which is what he did First, when he said, let there be light, right? Yeah, so yeah, right. it is the unveiling of Jesus Christ. And yes, Jesus Christ put on flesh, but it's not just the unveiling of a man in a historical sense. It's right. the unveiling of God's eternal purpose and what he was always after doing, right? That's why in chapter one, he says, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, right? He starts, I have the keys, right? I have the keys to death and Hades. Right? Right, right. Wow. So it's the, to put it in simple terms, there's a lot of in-betweens and there's a lot of details you could get into and there's a lot of intellectual things people get hung up on because I find most people try and read Revelation with their intellects and they don't realize all the things they have in place already in them when they go about to read something. 
We'll just use this as, a, as an example. Do you guys most of us? Do you guys realize most of us subconsciously read everything chronologically? Mm-hmm. That we just read through something and we just assume it's going in order. Yes, right. Even if you watch a movie and it starts one place, but then in the next place it seemingly jumps back, you can feel confused for a second. Like, wait a second, what just happened? Did they jump back? And you, you feel disoriented. We already read Revelation like that. Genesis, the first chapter of Genesis. We get to chapter 2 and we think that this happened after chapter 1. But it's a magnifying glass zooming in on to what happened in chapter 1. It's a further elaboration of what happened in chapter 1. And so if you're reading through Revelation and you're just reading it chronologically, you're missing what's going on there because it isn't chronological. It's John being caught up in a vision and seeing something outside of time. So it wasn't happening chronologically. It's like, can you imagine taking a... This is going to be hard to put words to. Can you imagine taking a historical event that would happen like inside of time in a certain order and then taking that outside of time as it all is after it happened and then looking at it? And then looking at this part and then coming over here and looking at that part and then coming over here and looking at this part? I mean, that's how you have to read Revelation. It actually requires the loss of the human intellect. It actually requires living and thinking outside of the human intellect completely. It has to be by the spirit that you even discern what's going on there. And there's a lot of different things you can see to to point to that. You can read about the keys being used to open up the abyss three different times. And it's said in the exact same way. One's in chapter 11, one's in like chapter 16, and one's in like chapter 20. But it's the exact same words. But we think it's three different occurrences, talking about three different things. And we never stop and think, maybe it's talking about the same thing, right? Same thing with Satan, talking about that old dragon, the serpent, the ancient. That same language is you that's used in chapter 12 is also used in chapter 20. The binding of Satan. We just read the binding of Satan, and we're just reading Revelation. And we don't even consider that Jesus, in in Matthew 16, talking about himself going to be with the Father, which is what Revelation 12 says about Satan being cast out, Jesus himself says the gates of death and Hades cannot stand against the revelation that the sons of man are the sons of God. And then he says, I will give you the keys. What does it say about Satan being bound with the keys? I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. What does he go on to say? And whatsoever you shall bind. Bind. Satan was bound. And we we don't factor in all this stuff when we read. No, we're just good little studious readers. We're going to read it like a book. It's chronological. It's true. It's so true. People do not want to... People in our society, really, it's a struggle to have the time to get caught up with the Lord the way that would be required if you actually wanted to put revelation in proper time and space. Because it would require so much sitting with the Lord and, Lord, help me see outside of natural sight and natural eyes, right? Help me see the revelation of Jesus Christ and then fill everything out from there, right? Help me put out all of my predisposed dispositions about what all this means, right? Even like, even if we just like take a concept, like, I don't want to say a concept, even if we just take like something that's true, like the the term hell that's used in the Bible, that's called Hades. How many people in here never heard anything about hell and then 
just read the scriptures. All of us had already been taught something about hell was, what hell was, before we even read the scriptures. And if you're not aware that that gives you a bias, that's a big problem. Because in order to not have a bias, or I don't want to say it that way, in order for your bias not to affect your interpretation, you would have to know you have a bias. (laughs) And if you don't know you have a bias, then that will affect your interpretation, right? And so the first thing you would have to come and realize is I'm biased in this area because somebody confronted me with what this was before I read anything. That's why you get people arguing about what's in the scriptures. You can use the Bible to justify anything you want to believe. Why can you do that? Because you first start with the belief, and then you look to find it in the scriptures. If that's what you're doing, that's wrong. That's called biased interpretation. That's called you establishing your own reasoning. That's how most people read the scriptures. That's why it's so difficult for humans. It's so difficult for us to leave our biases to the side and just read the scriptures, right? It's so difficult for us to do that. Like you have to cognizantly be aware. Okay, I have a bias here. That's one of the first things God said to me when he said, take everything you think you know and throw it in the garbage can. I didn't understand what he was saying there. Certainly some of what I believed had to be true. But what he's saying is you come with all these biases, Greg, and those biases create boxes. And those biases are going to keep you from seeing everything I want to show you because you're going to establish the biases you already have. And you've already been doing that, right? And so it's like a painful thing where you lay down all of your own judgments and conclusions. Lean not unto your own understanding. Mm -hmm. Well, I already had an understanding about what hell was before I even read the scriptures. I had already had ideas about it planted into me. Right? Well, if you already have ideas, you can find things in the Bible that will seemingly justify the idea we're going to have slavery. So if you begin with an idea that slavery is good, you can go in the Bible and seemingly find a a couple of verses that back up what you believe. And you're just going to believe what the Scripture says. Yeah. But that ain't what the Scripture says. The Scripture is plainly said. But that ain't what the Scripture plainly says. Do you see? You see how that works? I had a... uh professor in law school uh, teaching a property class he wasn't very popular but i loved him loved his teaching technique and he was trying to explain what an immovable is so i just said immovable everybody has a concept of an immovable and he asked for an example someone said a house would y'all agree a house no. isn't immovable? No. no you have to live through katrina and know that's not <laughs> <laughs> this is the wrong place to say that yeah that's right okay most reasonable people can agree y'all with ruined that. it yeah. never mind yeah. <laughs> we got no but most people said a house right a house. and he said yeah i thought that too until i saw one on the trailer going down the street right. so we have a concept of what a word means and uh it, it's actually i find more exciting to let go of those preconceptions <laughs> because like what is on the other side of the you've yeah. other side of that yeah it's like well now you're going to really enter into understanding yeah what's on the other side of that is you seeing through god's eyes yeah. instead of your own by a bias is you seeing through your own eyes your own judgments your own views and i promise you as beautiful as what we think it is that we might see it's monumentally more beautiful to look through life through the eyes of god Right. And that's why the the putting off 
of, of biases, right? And, and stopping and saying, well, what does the Lord see about this? And have I been conditioned with a bias, right? And is that bias playing a role or is it not, yeah. right? You know what else it, it, causes, it can cause you to do is, in other words, when you read in the scriptures and you put aside the biases, you can be willing to acknowledge to yourself that you don't know certain things. You don't have to affix a meaning to everything mm. that is based on a, a bias. Or even with you, as you read, you begin to think, well, maybe this means this. And maybe this means this in developing your own bias or your own theology. Mm -hmm. Because there are a lot of theologies that are built not necessarily on a premise, but on what sounds good to you, what feels good to you. What, in other words, it, it is based on your intellect and your human reasoning. Right. Yep. But if you set aside the biases and say, Lord, I don't really know everything about everything. Teach me the truth here. And as you read like that, you can read something about a particular thing and say, you know, I really don't understand this. I believe what you're communicating to me, and I accept what you're communicating to me, but I don't really know the answer to this. And then, in time, God can reveal to you what is in there. It can explain that to you. And when he explains something to you, Somehow or another, you find it fitting with everything else that mm -hmm. you know is true. We all know things that are true. Yeah. We Listen, we know Jesus died for our sins. Yeah. What does that mean? Yeah. Where does that lead you? So what you do is you come to grips with what you know is true. Incontrovertibly, in other words, you know that certain things are true about the Lord what he did for us and everything. And you build on that truth and you begin to develop your understanding. But when you leave that and you come over here and you say, well, I already know what that means. Well, Peter, because of his bias, tried to talk Jesus out of going to the cross. That's yeah. right. Absolutely. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Yeah. yeah. He, he was referring to the thought behind that. Yes. Not the... That's right. And that's a powerful thing also because look what... I mean, get behind me, Satan. Well, what would Satan be doing? Accusing. Accusing also, but Satan is the one standing opposed to man having life. And so Jesus would have seen the cross as the foundation from where he was going to put off corruption and actually put on incorruption. And he saw Satan standing against that, right? And then you could go on to say Jesus as the Messiah, but just speaking of Jesus as the son of man, he saw the cross as the place where he would put off the body of death and he would put on the incorruptible life of God. And Satan would have been standing opposed um, to that. But but real quick, to, to Maurice's point, yeah, you you because a bias could be I'm uncomfortable not knowing something, and therefore I'm going to come to conclusions just so I don't feel uncomfortable right, not knowing right. something. Exactly. Whereas you you come to the place where you realize, no, 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 I have all things in God, everything I need for life and godliness is in him, right? So I'm okay if I don't understand something because I already have everything in him, right? I'm not going to gain something else that I don't have in him. And then from that foundation, like Marie so beautifully said, you could ask for wisdom. 
See, because now you're not lusting after wholeness through understanding. You're seeing I am whole out of union with God, right? And now you're talking with God out of union, right? Like, let us see. And from that perspective, you won't be coming up with doctrines just to satisfy a question or to satisfy some human emotion you have, which is what a lot of people do. Right? They, they create a doctrine to try to combat some emotion they have yep. or to try to bring peace to themselves. Right, That's also having a bias. Yeah. That's the same as having a preconceived notion mm-hmm. and reading it into the scriptures. That's the same kind of a thing where you're trying to find peace in something other than just God. Right? A friend of mine put it this way. You, you got it. You just don't get it. Yeah. <laughs> right. Glenn. Yes. Um, Greg, the litmus test you mentioned um, in Thomas and Greenwich as far as Christ, right? Whether or not we see it, all of Scripture, there's a cohesion first in Christ. So the master-slave thing, let's think about this. Jesus says there's neither master nor slave, nor man or woman. A cohesion. Go unto Peter. Be slaves of God. Next English paragraph, masters and slaves, example of Jesus. Next paragraph, in the same way, you wives. Next paragraph, in the same way, you husbands. Next paragraph, let all of you have the same attitude. So if we can see it, there's not much of truncation, but everything is cohesive with the living Christ. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. But yeah, I mean, we said this a lot, but if the whole mm-hmm. body of Christ can come together and accept that Jesus is the only rabbi, mm-hmm. yeah, we'd all have a lot less division. We'd have a lot less arguing. We'd have a lot less denominations. We could all come <laughs> together and accept that there's one who knows, and it's none of us. <laughs> right? Then we can actually come together and be helpful to one another as we behold Christ. Right. right. So, all right. The word made flesh is the word. So what do we see there? And now we start talking with each other about that. Right. And now we're not being taught of one another. We're all being taught of the Lord. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's like in, in counseling sessions that I do. People think that I'm teaching them. I'm not teaching them. We're both being taught of the Lord at the same time. Right. Because everything we're going to talk about is going to be born from the word that was made flesh in Jesus. And therefore, we're all being taught. By the Lord. I'm not teaching them. I'm pointing to the teacher and what the teacher says, right? I'm pointing to the discernment that's come from Rabbi, from the Word made flesh. He's come and discerned our lives from us. He's come and discerned our hearts from us. He's come and discerned the thoughts and intents of our hearts. He's come and showed us which thoughts would come from death and lack, which thoughts would come from God and from above. He's come and discerned all that for us. And if we'll just stop and look, and consider and ask questions, what will happen is that will discern everything in our midst. It will. It will. And when you learn from God, you're learning from the right person. Oh, man, it's a, it's a beautiful. I still remember this day where God said, lend me your eyes and I'll change what you see. Wow. And what a powerful thing that was. And I was thinking this morning about how differently I see life and how strange it is to most people <laughs> when I talk about it. And how contrary it is to everything. It's like the antithesis. It is the antithesis of the world's way of thinking. Because the world's 
thought process, the mind of the world, the carnal mind has been born from a perishing life. So everything it thinks has been fathered by a perishing life. But everything God thinks is born from an imperishable life, a life that can't perish. And so the two thought processes are opposite. Polar opposites. Sure. 